Hey, this is Daryl. If you haven't subscribed to The Athletic, you can get 40% off an annual subscription if you go to theathletic.com slash totalsoccer. That's 40% off an annual subscription at theathletic.com slash totalsoccer, where you can read stories like Michael Cox explaining why Pulisic is often at his best when he does not dribble past players. It's actually a very convincing article, and I recommend it. Or something less timely, but no less interesting, Simon Hughes' story, Andy Carroll, The Liverpool Years. Once again, that's 40% off an annual subscription if you go to theathletic.com slash totalsoccer. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who loves a good finale. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello, that is accurate. I love a finale and then I love a good finale. And for me, this was a good finale. I'm switching it to American pronunciation for the end. (laughs) So why was it a good finale for you? I mean, as a Manchester United fan, they finish fourth, oh. they get Champions League football. Christian Pulisic also gets Champions League football. Uh, and then, yeah, you know, the relegation battle, I wasn't necessarily overly concerned about any of them, but I think it, it ends up being a somewhat fair reflection, though I know uh, Sheffield United fans would say Villa got very lucky with their point to stay up. Yeah, so Villa and Hawkeye stayed mm-hmm. up. Yes, Villa and exactly. <laughs> stayed up. I would argue that actually there wasn't that much drama on finale day and maybe the Aston Villa game is the biggest example of how there wasn't that much drama yeah I mean I think I think me saying like yeah more or less fine with it indicates that there was not that much drama yeah (laughs) let me give you the Villa example please um so Jack Grealish local lad Villa fan scores late in the game to make it 1-0 and then you've got this story of Grealish scores the goal that keeps Villa up Mm -hmm. right but then Yarmolenko scores the equaliser. Um, it, it loops over old man Pepe Reina, who was wearing the boots from face-off. <laughs> <laughs> and it finishes 1-1. <laughs> and Villa stay up anyway. right? And, and I think that sort yeah. of lack of drama, lack of big narratives was, was sort of how this whole day felt, right? Like the Man United-Leicester game. Um, I know you're a Man United fan, but you're very good at um, analysing Man United from a neutral perspective. So I'm sure mm-hmm. we'll talk about that game at some point. But that game promised a lot of drama, but Leicester never really threatened Man United, right? And once that first penalty went in, it kind of felt like, all right, this is this is done. And a draw was fine for United anyway, right? Correct. So we, I think we were lacking big, big, big drama. Yeah, it, it does seem like like that is more often the case. Uh, then, it, like I think, every now and then you get that season where like the team getting relegated changes eight times in the final hour of the day. Yeah. Uh, but more often than not, it's like who's going to win the I... battle for fourth between two teams <laughs> that are. Sort of, it's already decided, but it could go this way if one team wins 8-0. Yeah, that tends to be more so the final day drama. I didn't even open the calculator app on my phone. I mean, there you go. Right there, you know. I think part of that is because we're not watching at a bar, so you don't have to do any sort of calculations for tips. But yes, then also it is sort of points calculations, too. (laughs) I can do 20% in my head. Um, So instead of reviewing all the games, we took... We took listener questions via Twitter, mm-hmm. which really is a different flavor of question than our usual email question. That is true. 
um, especially in terms of what people's names are. Um, so, are you ready to are you ready to roll through with uh, with some questions about the Premier League finale? And by the way, we're going to be talking about the NWSL Championship game later in today's show. I am I am ready to talk about all of those things. But first, I have to acknowledge that that was a solid solid face off reference to start the show, and I did not see it coming. Well done, sir. Well done, sir. Oh. All right, first question mm-hmm. comes from DGB. Which feels like your pseudonym, i got to be honest. It's, it's not, I promise. It's mm-hmm. not. Um, I'm at Total Soccer Show. Um, <laughs> DGB, did those two players from Liverpool you mentioned get the appearances they needed for a medal? So this goes back to, we were talking about maybe Liverpool would use a bit more of their squad, and there were certain young players who, if they hit five appearances, would officially qualify for a Premier League winner's medal. Now, in my head, there were three players that we had mentioned, mm-hmm. um, and they didn't all make it. Only two of the three made it. Yeah, it was Virgil van Dijk, Jordan Henderson, <laughs> and Roberto Firmino. Only two of them got winner's medals. Shocker, <laughs> shocker. It was young Harvey Elliott. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, Curtis Jones in midfield. And who's the right back? Nico uh, Williams. Ni- Nico Williams. So Nico Williams got six appearances, right? He did. Um, Curtis Jones got six appearances. Both of those players featured in the final day win over Newcastle. Harvey Elliott finishes with just two appearances. So officially no Premier League winner's medal. He might get one anyway, but he doesn't um, qualify by the official rules. He'll so get a thumbs answer. up and a good job, buddy. But yes, yeah. no official medal for sure. A pat on the back and there's many years ahead of you. Yes. <laughs> but the answer is, yeah, Nico Williams and Curtis Jones both officially get Premier League winners mm-hmm. medals. So that next is a, a fairly straightforward one. Yeah, the next one, a bit more opinionated. Uh, Bartimus Prime, solid name there. Uh, now that we've seen the entirety of Project Restart, who did the pandemic help the most? I have a few answers, Daryl, but I'd like to hear yours first. I think there's only one, isn't it? Manchester United. I think, I think there are four potential answers, to okay. be honest. Yeah, but I well, think let, Manchester let United me, is number one on my list. Yeah, let me make the case for Man United then, Please. and then you let me know about the others. It's Paul Pogba gets time to get fit. Yep. Marcus Rashford's back heals. Yep. Anthony Martial gets fully fit. Mm-hmm. And Mason Greenwood, between March and June, became not only a man, but one yep. of the best players in the Premier League. Yep. <laughs> that is legally and uh, emotionally true. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, and, and that's what turned Manchester United season's around, season around. And that's, I mean, not that it turned it completely around, but, you know, they've had a massive uptick in form after Project Restart, or at least continued some good form into Project Restart and beyond, and finished fourth in the Premier League because of it. I, I think they're the obvious winner. I think, I think they're, they've got a solid shout for sure. And then I think you could add in, from what I have read, it sounds like Bruno sort of took the pandemic break as an opportunity to get to know some of the teammates better, obviously via quarantine, but there were sort of Skype hangouts and Zoom hangouts and things like that. And I think that like led him to better understand the squad, better fit in with the squad. And I think that does explain partially how he's taken on that leadership role and how he's kind of fit in all the more. He's the Portuguese Roy Keane, but friendlier. Only friendly. Only friendlier. (laughs) Yes. And doesn't hate David De Gea the way Roy Keane seems to. So yeah, I think, I think Manchester United are probably the best shout. The other three that I had, unless you wanted to mention anything else about Man United. No, I think I made the case pretty strongly. I'll I honestly be surprised if there's a if there's a stronger case for anyone else. I don't think there, I don't think there is, but my other candidates would be uh, Chelsea because I think you have the emergence of Pulisic and Giroud uh, in much stronger form, uh, and I think they also sort of benefit from the slide of those around them because of the pandemic <laughs> and because of the sort of break. 
I buy the idea of the emergence of Pulisic, right? Uh-huh. As, you know, especially becoming a first-team player and really contributing heavily yep. in terms of goals and assists. But I also love the idea of the emergence of Giroud. Like Lampard yeah. looked down his list of players and was like, "Oh yeah, that guy." Did you know? Did you know this fellow won the World Cup? <laughs> I mean, we should give him a go. To some extent, I feel like that is how that went down. <laughs> like, <laughs> like he was sort of very much on the outside looking in at the start of the season, and now here he is, their most important goal scorer. Uh, yeah, so, I think- Tammy Abraham's like, ah, busted. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I was waiting for them to find out yeah exactly (laughs) um so i think there's an argument for chelsea i think there's an argument for villa looking at the way they were as uh the suspension of play began with five straight losses really really struggling for form and then i think this break allows them to sort of regroup uh since the restart they've won two drawn four they've lost some games obviously but those losses to chelsea wolves liverpool and man united a bit more explainable and i think so the break maybe allows them to stabilize a bit more cools the crisis slightly and the biggest one with that in mind would be Tottenham for me they Mm. return with the draw yes yeah that's that's the other one because I forgot how bad their form was right before we have this break that they return uh, to start there with a draw against Manchester United which at the time we were like oh we're not sure what to make of that Manchester United have been bad now that we know that their form sort of hit the, the ceiling it did that draw looks all the better to me. Uh, but prior to that shutdown, the last game they play is a 3-0 drubbing by Leipzig, which eliminates them from the Champions League because they had previously lost 1-0. They were on a six-game winless streak, eliminated from the Champions League, injuries everywhere because they don't have Kane or Son. That's, and the, it seems... that's the key, right? Like, yeah. It's, it's more than results. It's no Kane, no Son. I think Lucas Moura was... Bit... No, no, Lucas Moura was like playing as auxiliary He was striker, the only right? one, yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Spurs had essentially no strikers to aim at. Mm-hmm. And then... Then Kane and Son come back, and now they do. Yeah, and that does factor into an answer I'll I'll give later with Tottenham, so I'm happy to to call it there when it comes to the Spurs talk. But I was was sort of surprised to have forgotten how bad they were in and the kind of stories that we had. I mean, there's lots lots been written about would Mourinho have been sacked if we didn't have that break with the way things were going, and do they turn it around? And again, I think that break allows him to sort of slow down calm things down, figure out his squad a bit more, continue to have some conversations with some players that maybe didn't go that well. Uh, but I think in the end, they have a strong showing. And with all that said, it's probably Manchester United. I think it is just because they make the Champions League, but yep. there's a strong argument for Spurs. More Spurs talk come in later on. Yep. Mm-hmm. Next question. Jacob asks, does Johnny Evans have a collection of severed human shin bones on the wall in his house? I mean, I hope not uh that would also be a strange like collector's item (laughs) like in terms of like when you know a character has gone off the deep end it's like it's always like the vietnam movie where they're collecting human ears like a shin bone (laughs) is a very specific body part to have to it requires surgery and some medical expertise like dexter would keep shin bones is i guess what i'm getting at but for johnny evans i understand where the question is coming from because we do do this with defenders when they have these high profile moments of uh, injuring a player or getting very obvious red cards, even if it's very few and far between, it becomes a sort of, oop, that's sort of his his brand, that's his reputation. And I understand where that question is coming from. And for those who don't know, um, towards the end of Manchester United's win over Leicester, Johnny Evans made one good tackle mm-hmm. and then followed it up with a really bad tackle on Scott yep. McTominay and got himself um, a straight red card. Yep. Right? Um, and it was the type of tackle, it's like a a lunge essentially um, with his you know front foot way far way far out ahead of himself it was very similar to the tackle that like really badly mm-hmm. injured Stu Holden yep. um, I went I went back and took a look and it looks it looks very similar yep. and I kind of think this is a Johnny Evans tackling style thing you are correct 
That, yeah. This is my. This goes back to his Man United days, and I, my buddy Sean would always say that he defends like he's on an island, which is not to say like has a big beard and learns how to spearfish, but more so that he just sort of I think forgets he has defensive partners and others around him who can do a defensive job, and tries to do too much in a very instinctual. Oh, there's this in front of me. I got to try to make yeah. a play. And I think when you're doing that, it leaves you reckless. It leaves you careless, and it leaves you exposed. In this case, with your your foot outstretched and your cleats very much visible. I would argue that 98, 99% of the time, it's actually really, really useful. And I would even mm-hmm. argue that maybe spearfishing is a good is a good analogy for what he's doing, right? Obviously. I, the way I think of Johnny Evans, I, I think he's a really useful defender, is he is very brave at stepping out and snuffing out danger and often like making those kinds of tackles. And the majority of what he does is similar to the first tackle he makes, which I think is on Lingard um, in this sequence. I'm not 100% sure. Um, but then... Every so often, that tackle turns into the reckless version, which is what McTominay got. It's what Stu Holden got. And those tackles are really, 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 really dangerous. And in in Stu Holden's case, can end careers, right? And absolutely deserve red cards. What what is the limit for you, the threshold for when it becomes like, yeah, this is a thing that player does? Like, does it have to be three sort of red card broken leg incidents? Is it just two? Like, where is it for you when it goes from it's a thing that occasionally happens to a thing that you associate with that player? Oh, that's a that's a tough question, right? Mm -hmm. Because he is doing the same thing every time, right? But it's just that it's such precise timing that when it's slightly wrong, it goes very, very, very wrong, Mm -hmm. right? So in a weird way, he's doing it all the time. Um, And then there's an element of luck on everybody's part that people don't get hurt each time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I don't don't know where to draw the line when he's doing the same thing each time. I think for me it comes down to like the reaction afterward. I know that probably won't be a surprise for you and many listeners who know that I love to overanalyze it, like tiny little moments over and over and over again. But I think when he gets up, you, it could be misconstrued as like, yeah, I did that and I don't regret it. But I think it's more almost you can see him walking off being like, again, again, Johnny, why are you doing this, man? <laughs> like, like I, I, it didn't feel like the I am frustrated with the way our season has gone. I'm going to take it out on Scott McTominay's shins sort of tackle, which I do think we see from other defenders who have more of that reputation. I think it is him making individual mistakes. Uh, and so I think that's where, where I go with it. It's like if the reaction afterward is like, I regret nothing, and I like blow my nose on the field as I walk off, which he may well have done, <laughs> actually. Uh, I think that's probably like the difference maker for me. Quick related Johnny Evans question. Mm-hmm. Um, before he gets sent off, he's involved in the penalty kick, right? That Anthony Martial wins. It's yes. a, a quick uh, United win the ball back. I want to say it's Rashford tackles uh, Hamza Chowdhury. Um, and Bruno Fernandes very quickly plays a ball through for Anthony Martial. And then Martial, it seems, is brought down by a combination of Johnny Evans and Wes Morgan. There was a lot of debate uh, with the NBC Sports crew, um, Arlo Whiteley, Dixon and Graham Lasso. Did Johnny Evans get a toe to that ball? Mm-hmm. I, I watched this a lot from a lot of different angles. I don't think so. I think if he does, it is very, very slight because the trajectory of the ball, it's really strange because Johnny Evans comes in the way he does, which moves Anthony Martial. So to some extent, it looks like the ball moves a lot more than it does. It's because the players move, not really the ball. Yeah. So I think if he does, it's very minor. And it always goes back to me to you can get the ball. But if you go through the player, it's going to be a 
call. Like the idea of all ball challenge or I got ball doesn't really matter if you destroy the player. And I think <laughs> even if there was a tiny bit of contact from Johnny Evans, there's much more contact going through Anthony Martial. Because then I guess the idea would be that if he gets ball and like cleanly wins it away and then gets Anthony Martial, there's no play to be made. It's a legal play. Whereas if he just barely touches it, and then clears out Anthony Martial. Martial can no longer make that play. The ball still would have been there. So I think even if he does, to me, still very much a penalty. And while we're on it, Ted, I've got to ask you about this. Mm -hmm. Are you a fan of Bruno Fernandes' penalty kick technique? It's a strange thing, because no, I hate that style, but I also never really doubt that he's going to finish it. Like, he seems to, to be very calm and know exactly what he's doing, and I think that's kind of all I want from a penalty taker. It just personally, for me, is the weirdest style, and the timing it's, is so odd that I don't really like it for myself. I want to say this is what Joseph Martinez has been doing. Yes, right? it is. And it's that hop. The, and the idea, as I understand it, is like you have the slowish run-up, you have the hop just before, and during the hop, or as you make the hop, I think... The keeper always seems to just mm. like like throw all his cards on the table and say, here's what I've got, <laughs> and, yep. and leans or dives a certain way. And then when Fernandez lands, he can just decide, all right, you're going to the left, I'm going to the right. And it's, I, I wonder why keepers aren't used to it yet and why when Fernandez jumps in the air, they don't just like stand their ground and be like, mm-hmm. all right, now you've got to take it from a standing position and you don't know where I'm going. I think there there is something to be said for the optics of a goalkeeper not moving in a penalty. And and it's it's like in my mind when you're playing a video game and you're like, okay, I'm not gonna make that mistake again. Like I know not to do that. I know not to like pull the gun at that moment or take the shot at that moment. I know to slow it down, and then the next time you have that shooting opportunity, if it's in FIFA or something, you redline it or you panic because you do the same thing. I think <laughs> that's a minor example, but I think to a larger extent, I think it's a goalkeeper, even if they know he's going to do it, it's really hard to back yourself to remain motionless and remind yourself and stay that sort of present to be able to do that. The one goalkeeper who comes to mind who did do that, I remember, is Petr Petr Cech. Uh, (laughs) Maybe, Uh, but (laughs) Petr Cech for sure. There's the famous story uh, in the uh, Champions League shootout with Manchester United where he had been briefed that if Ronaldo does that stop and you don't move, like 95% of the time he puts it in this one position, Petr Cech does not move. And Ronaldo does exactly that, and that's the one save he makes in that shootout. So I think if goalkeepers really can truly back themselves and have that confidence to stay there and wait, I think then that starts getting exposed a bit more. But until then, it does seem like goalkeepers continue to sort of panic in that moment and forget and just cheat one way or the other. And I think Bruno can, can read that. I think Joseph can as well. I've got a very specific prediction for 2020-21, and it's mm-hmm. that Fernandez will have a penalty saved. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> before, we, before we move on to our next question, which is all about Spurs, by the way, mm-hmm. today's show is sponsored by Manscaped. You've heard us talk about Manscaped before. Manscaped has the Lawnmower 3.0. Um, It is waterproof. It's the cordless body trimmer um, that will take care of any hairs you want taken care of. It's so precise and so useful that I think Jose Mourinho, we know he likes detail. We know he likes specificity. He actually uses the Lawnmower 3.0 to actually trim the ground uh, before Tottenham (laughs) games because he knows he can get it the exact (laughs) length he wants. It's going to be uniform. It does take a lot longer to do the entire field than it would, say, his own body. But, you know, that's the sacrifice you make for beauty and beautiful play. I thought you were going to tell me they have a series of very hairy men um, on staff at Spurs. <laughs> and, and Jose does the chalkboard um, with a lawnmower 3.0 in, into some big hairy bodies. I mean, now I kind of wish I had. That would be, <laughs> that would be interesting. Ta- I mean, it would I mean, be kind of genius because once, te- once you've done it, you just shave the rest off and there's no evidence. No one can know what you're doing. 
I mean, how hard is it to just write counterattack on someone? <laughs> I mean, with, with a lot of trimmers, it would be very difficult. But with the lawnmower 3.0, which is very precise, uh, I think you you could do that. You know, you, you got to make sure that the person is very very hairy and has enough space to work on. Uh, but if you wanted to do that in the rain, you could because it's waterproof. Uh, you don't need the cord, so you don't need to be plugged into an outlet. So maybe he goes to another country where there's conversion issues, but not with the uh, the lawnmower 3.0. Leipzig, maybe? Does it work in Leipzig? Yeah, let's find out. Let's find out. <laughs> um, other products um, mm-hmm. available via Manscaped include the weed whacker for taking care of your nose and your ears and anywhere else that's hard to reach. The Crop Reviver um, that will um, add a little pep in your step and keep things nice and fresh down there. Mm -hmm. Um, The best thing is you can get 20% off plus free shipping if you go to manscaped.com and use the code TSS20. That's TSS20 is the code. Manscaped.com is the website. 20% is the amount you will get off plus free shipping. Thank you to Manscaped for sponsoring today's show. All right, Taylor, you got the next question for me? I do indeed from CJ Francis. Do you think it was inappropriate for Jose and Spurs coaching staff to celebrate the way they did after making the Europa League? Have you seen this celebration? I have. It's not that bad, is it? Isn't it just a bunch of coaches jumping up and down and congratulating themselves on qualifying for Europe? Yeah, I I think, though, but when you see it within the lens of, yeah, they qualified for the Europa League, but is that a thing that they should be sort of so boisterously celebrating and really patting each other on the back for? I mean, I think, yes, given the massive turnaround that had to happen. I remember when we were doing our preview for Project Restart, Mm -hmm. CJ Francis definitely asked us a question and I can't remember if she asked, will they make the Champions League or will they qualify for Europe? I want to say it was, will they qualify for Europe? And I said it was a long shot because it was. And they've made it. Yep. Spurs have qualified for Europe. I think that's worth hugging your coaches and jumping up and down. The only thing that tarnishes it a little bit is that it was achieved via a 1-1 draw with Crystal Palace. So mm-hmm. a bit like Villa, right? It's not like the, vi- the victorious, glorious moment. It's like, oh, we only managed a draw, but it was good enough anyway, mm-hmm. uh, because Wolves lost 2-0 to Chelsea. Um, but also there's definitely evidence of Jose saying some not nice things about the Europa League in the past. Um, do you know who Lewis Hamilton is? No, but yes. He's a, he's a Formula One driver. Okay. Right? You know, like the European racing thing, right? Mm-hmm. So in the past, apparently... <laughs> Do you know who he is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the a, European he's... racing thing? I, I was trying to explain it. Like it it's, it's like NAS- NASCAR with Benz. <laughs> um, so Fewer left Lu- turns, yeah. Lewis Hamilton is a champion Formula One driver. And mm-hmm. Jason Mourinho in the past has said, look, the Europa League is like if Lewis Hamilton went and played and went and drove in Formula Two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? So he's been a little bit dismissive of the Europa League in the past. But I say, yeah, if you didn't look like qualifying and things look really, really, really bad at one point um, and you made it on the last day, grab your coaches and jump up and down. Go for it, Jose. Yeah, I mean, I think that I agree. And I think you have to look at things within a vacuum. Uh, in this case, at least I'm choosing to do that because, yeah, it's like he probably said that at a time when they were like he was managing a team who were like in the top four and they were struggling a little bit. And there's a question about like, will you ha- be happy with Europa League? If you're in third place and you get that question, you're going to say no. If you're in yeah. ninth place and you get that question, you're going to say yes. Yeah. And I think like, give me that so Europa League goodness. I, yeah. Like, I, and I think you can find quotes that will disprove 
sort of anything because that's the nature of having everything you say recorded and then published. Um, I mean, and, you do, you do. He's a person who says a lot as well. So yes, <laughs> yes. But I think I think it is sort of easy to mock those moments that like, wow, they're celebrating Europa League. Okay, but I think when you see it within the context of what we've already talked about about how difficult their season was, about the situation that he inherits, and about how bad it was at a certain point for for Jose Mourinho, I think. It's then worth noting that like like teams and players exist within the context that they are presently in. And if you are challenging for the title and you lose, you're not going to celebrate being in the Champions League. You're going to be bummed that you didn't win the title. Yeah. Yay, but if you are place. Yeah, exactly. But if you are fighting to get into the Europa League and that is a stated objective because the season has not gone well and in the end you succeed and you reach that objective, you've met your objective, you've met your goal and I think players are going to celebrate, I think coaches will as well. And I think Jose is also very specific and particular about these types of moments. And my assumption would be that he is celebrating because he feels like this was an incredibly difficult task that he was able to pull off. And I think he's going to want credit for it. I think it's a little bit like when he got Man United to second place and it became like, all right, well, what are you going to do next? And it was sort of like, wait, wait, wait. Like, let's look at what just happened here and sort of digest that a bit more. I won't be surprised if in a season or two we're getting these stories about how, like, that season was actually pretty decent and it's easy to overlook, but he actually did this and this and this. And I think that is sort of where I'm coming from when I see him celebrate. I don't really have an issue. I'm more so like, yeah, he kind of deserves it. I just think it was a little much to go and find Alex Ferguson and run past him. I mean, that was a bit much. I don't yeah, think that, you need to that do that. That was laying yeah. it on a big foot. Um, <laughs> Trevor McDonald wants to know... He, bro- he broke a lot of quarantine rules to do that, by the way. <laughs> Not for the first time. Uh-uh. Trevor McDonald wants to know, um, how did Watford keep it so close against Arsenal? Um, mm-hmm. For those who don't know, Arsenal beat Watford 3-2. Um, they went 3-0 up very, very quickly in the first half. Watford needed to win, right? Watford needed to win to have a, a good chance of staying up. They ended up losing 3-2. I would argue Watford didn't keep it all that close. It's more that Arsenal went 3-0 up and then sort of relaxed a little bit. Yep. I think that is a very fair read on the situation. That Yeah, when you're 3-0 up on the final day and you don't have a lot to play for, it, it's easy to sort of take the foot off the gas and be like, yeah, we're cruising. And yeah. I think if you're Watford, who are fighting for survival, that's always going to open doors. If one team reduces their efficiency and effectiveness and work rate by 10% and the other increases so it, there you I, go. I went back and had a, a good look, not at the full 90 minutes, but at good chunks of this game, right? And what I saw is pretty much what you just said, but here's some more detail on it. Um, there is one team fighting for their life, right, in Watford. And there's another team in Arsenal who don't have anything to play for in terms of league position. Do have an FA Cup final coming up, right? So you've got to be a little bit, maybe a little bit careful. But also are still committed to this Mikel Arteta system, which is a lot about taking big risks and playing out of the back, right? And I think that is what allowed Watford to... Um, really uh, stay stay close to Arsenal. The first yeah. Watford goal, for example, is Rob Holding trying to force a pass to Danny Ceballos that absolutely was not on, and Danny Welbeck picks it off and Watford, Watford score from it. So I think Arsenal, once they were 3-0 up especially, um, and if you've, have you seen the Aubameyang overhead kick goal? Yeah. Um, that made it 3-0. I think at that point they really were sort of, all right, we're going to you know do our Arteta thing and mm-hmm. really committed to keep trying to play the ball out of the back. And they paid for it a couple of times at least. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's actually more telling that Watford, even with Arsenal in that mindset, Watford yeah. still couldn't get the victory that they needed. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think anytime you go three 0 down, pulling four goals back is going to be a challenge. Yeah. But I think you're absolutely right that when you're focused on this sort of system and playing out of the back, it does require everybody to be lockstep on the same page. Because if you start to have those gaps and a player who should have been there, it takes an, an extra couple seconds or is a couple yards off, it's going to slow everything down. It's going to make it harder. And if you're Watford, who are absolutely fighting as hard as they can they're going to find those opportunities and exploit them. But I think it's, it speaks volumes that that is Watford fighting as hard as they can right now with, say, Troy Deeney, who looked for all the world like he was ready to take a nap. And I don't mean that in like a fitness thing. I think that he has been above and beyond for Watford and has worked so yeah. hard this season and I think gave everything he possibly could this season and in this game. But at the same time, that sort of reliance on certain individuals to pull you through – is where you end up in a relegation battle if those players aren't able to execute consistently throughout the season. I did enjoy the Dini Welbeck partnership. Mm-hmm. They had nearly had a goal where they sort of had a, a series of one twos just at the top of the box, and yeah. I think Welbeck just couldn't couldn't quite finish. I also forgot how much I enjoy um, Ismail Assar, the yeah. the right winger. I think there's a chance that somebody comes in for him now that they're now that they're going down. I don't I think don't, there's a chance. I think there's yeah, a certainty. Yeah. I think he's sort of the prize asset, right? If mm. you were sort of picking over the carcass of Watford. I'd say it's him That's and me. then Ducore is like I think it's Sar and then Sar is also two and three and then option four is Ducore. <laughs> I wonder about Danny Welbeck though. Um, just with the injury history, I don't see anybody coming in and paying big money, right? Because mm-hmm. it's a bit of a it's a bit of an injury gamble. Even though he's a, he's a wonderful player when he's when he's healthy. I um, but with that in mind, though, would it be the worst thing for him to go down and be the sort of leading leading man for Watford in the championship? I'm sure he considers himself a Premier League player. But yeah, he'd, he'd do nicely in the championship. I'm sure, sure he considers himself a Premier League player, too. That doesn't change my question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it would look great, right, if he's banging yeah. in loads of goals for Watford in the, in the championship. But I'm sure he'll always be looking at the... He'll be opening the paper and just touching the Premier League table, being like, oh. I want to celebrate the Europa League. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Um, all right, you ready for one more question? Sure. Um, it's from Travis Deathridge. Mm-hmm. Travis wants to know, with Aston Villa staying up and having rich owners, what is their potential in the future? Um, I think their potential is fine, but I don't think it necessarily has as much to do with those rich owners because I don't think we're going to get some situation when they go out and spend $250 million to really like strengthen that squad and become you know like Europa League challengers or anything like that. Um, I think they'll spend some money, but I think m- more so they're going to focus on building kind of squad harmony and consistency uh, this offseason to be in a better position to not be in a relegation battle, but to finish comfortably mid-table next season. That would be my guess, is that they're targeting like 12th place as opposed to 17th. I think if you offer them 12th place next season, they'd take it right oh, yeah. now. Because the truth is, they did spend money this mm-hmm. summer, right? Exactly. They brought Wesley, they brought Matt Target. They, there's about like 10 players they bought, and they spent... I think Wesley was the top end at about 27 million, right? Mm-hmm. But a lot of players they bought were about 15 million pounds or so. 140 million in 14 months. Yeah, that's how, that's how much they spent, yeah? But mm-hmm. it, was, it was never like one big, gigantic... Like they're not they're not going to be Man City and buy fifty million pound fullback. No, right? It's going to be a lot of like fifteen to twenty million pound players, ten million pound players um, to try and establish a Premier League squad. That's what they did this past summer, and it got them seventeenth. Right? right. So they're probably going to do something similar-ish, maybe not even to the to the same extent. Right? Um, so they'll strengthen, but don't expect them to strengthen in a way that takes them shooting up the table. Um, not I, least I, they get they're going to lose Jack Grealish very very likely. You think so? That that that's one. That was my number one thing. Is it depends on Jack Grealish and what happens with him next season? Because if Did they do hear- lose him, we would assume it'd be for a lot of money, and I would assume they will then try to reinvest that. 
Did you hear the um, the Dean Smith quote? So yes. <laughs> I'm going to just relay this for listeners then. Dean Smith, the Villa manager, is a Villa fan. Jack Grealish is, you know, a Villa fan as well. Somebody asked Dean Smith after the game, what you know, what's going to happen in Jack Grealish's future? And Dean Smith said, Jack Grealish's future is going to the pub with me and getting drunk. That I did not hear. <laughs> I, I thought you were alluding to the other one where it was, what's the likelihood that if you all get relegated, Jack Grealish leaves? And he said 100%. That was the one that I was referencing. But I like Dean Smith more. Yeah, which especially it's like, how about don't ruin this moment for yes. us mm-hmm. by talking about Grealish possibly leaving. Let us just celebrate tonight. I think there's a really a really fun answer with a bit of barb to it, a bit of like, how about, how about not right now? Actually, with that in mind, I want to ask you the same question we got from uh, CJ Francis about Jose and Spurs coaching staff celebrating. I'm going to assume you saw the video of Villa in the locker room dancing to Sweet Caroline as they stayed up. What did you make of that? That one I I was a little bit more torn on. Oh, you didn't see it? No. Oh, yeah, it really is. They're playing it like it seems to be off of a boombox, which is in and of itself a questionable decision. Uh, but then, yeah, Sweet Caroline, they all jump in, they all start celebrating. Uh, you will not be surprised to learn that Roy Keane was not impressed by this choice. Uh, and I will admit that, that that was the one that it was like, you all know the situation in which you stayed up. And I understand that survival itself is enough that you would celebrate that you're in the Premier League next season. There's always next year. Now you can regroup and you can add some players and it'll be better. But it did feel like you all are celebrating very, very hard for a thing that you sort of, in some ways, lucked into. Uh, it, that one felt a bit extreme Ooh, to me. Taylor, that's harsh. Every team that stays up, every 17th place finishing team, yep. um, celebrates hard. Because you've just escaped death, basically. So I think like it's not like a necessarily a noble celebration, yeah. right? Because you've just failed the fourth worst instead of the first second or third worst yeah but it's still a it's still a victory right because you've escaped something major yeah i think i think it really does just come down to that hawkeye decision and for some reason like because i i saw the celebrations before i remembered that and i was like yeah good on them they stayed up that's great and then remembering that moment and that's really the reason that got them that point that secured their survival or like made it that much safer that was the moment where I was like, oh, that is right. Like, there was that moment of good fortune that allows them to be here. And I think that's it's probably true. where my hesitation but is coming from. If we're going to be serious about this, like, if if that goal had been allowed, it was like mm-hmm. the 40-something minute, right? You don't know how the rest of that game would have gone. That is maybe, very true. Maybe that Villa, like, true. go at Sheffield United and win that game because yeah. they go in 1-0 down at halftime, mm-hmm. right? Maybe yeah. in, Indiana Vasilev comes on at halftime and scores a hat-trick. Obviously. Um, that's what would have sure, happened. I'm sure Villa fans have plenty of decisions that have gone against them throughout the season as well that they that feel could true. balance out the Hawkeye mm-hmm. decision. Right. Let, let those Villa players have their fun dancing to Sweet Caroline. I will let certain Villa players have their fun. Other ones, like the one you mentioned already, Wesley, uh, has not really earned the right to celebrate. Yes, he stays alive, but five goals in 21 appearances is not what Villa were looking for. Same he thing got with, injured, uh, didn't he? That's true. Uh, Mabwana Samata as well. $12 million from Genk, one goal in 14 games. Uh, and lest we forget, the player that both of those players were meant to replace is Tammy Abraham, who scored yeah. 26 goals for them in the championship, admittedly the championship. But that is kind of the type of player I think they should go for, is the players that maybe they couldn't secure on a permanent deal last season. But Tammy Abraham, you might be able to get this offseason with the way Chelsea are signing players with the heavily linked story about Kai Havertz moving to Chelsea. It does seem as though Tammy Abraham is surplus to requirements, so maybe oh, you can get him on loan. Yeah. I've never even considered that Tammy Abraham might not be in Chelsea's plans next year. 
Yeah, I think there's a decent chance for that. I also think that maybe Villa might want to roll the dice on Troy Deeney. I don't know if he would leave Watford. I don't know what his his feeling is, but Troy Deeney, you know what you're getting in him. And I think that for a team that barely survived relegation, to have a leader and fighter like Troy Deeney, who's also just kind of lovable and a great character, uh, I would I would throw some money at him I'm, to see if you can get him in. So I know Troy Deeney's from Chelmsley Wood. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure he's a Birmingham City fan. There so I we are. Don't know, I don't know how he'd feel about playing for Villa. I would, like he'd have to move his family back to the Midlands. I don't know. That, that's an interesting one. I, I could right. see it, it's definitely a good fit. I think it would be a really, really good fit for Aston Villa. Mm-hmm. But I, I think all of that is, is to say to me that their potential is decent. It's Villa. Villa, like lest we forget, were a very big team at one point who had lots of very talented players, many of whom Manchester City bought, as did Manchester United. <laughs> uh, so like, I think they could easily get back into that mid-table uh, position. It just requires smart investment. And yeah. I don't think – I think it's much more about quantity than quality this time around. Yeah, and I'd say this to Travis. Wait, just sorry, having... Other way around, other way around. It was quantity versus quality last time. I would say it's quality versus quantity this time around. It's revolution, not evolution, right? Yeah, well said. <laughs> or evolution, <laughs> not revolution. <laughs> I knew what you meant. <laughs> um, so, Travis, the thing I'd say is just having rich owners in the Premier mm-hmm. League is not enough to guarantee even half success, yeah. right? There are a lot of rich owners in the Premier League, and, mm-hmm. there are, and then there are richer owners on top of that. <laughs> it's rich owners all the way up, basically. It's the opposite it really of turtles is. all the way down. It's rich owners all the way up. <laughs> <laughs> but what if those rich owners uh, have student loan payments, Daryl? Then they should have like paid, paid them, them off right away. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But if they haven't, then they could utilize today's sponsor. It's a new sponsor alert. Today's episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Ernest. Uh, Daryl, I was not familiar with Ernest prior to them appearing in the uh, the spreadsheet of advertisers. But reading about them, I am excited to have them on board uh, because they can make handling student loan payments much easier, much more manageable. They can help you get it under control. If you have not had it under control, and if you have and you've been making regular payments, then they can help you potentially reduce that rate or refinance to uh, not have to pay so, so much every single month or even a total amount at the end. Yeah, if, you're, if your student loan payment is too high, Ernest can help you refinance. Um, you, you can check and see if it works for you. It takes just two minutes. Um, interest rates have hit record lows because of the, you know, the entire economy crashing, uh, which means it's a great time to refinance your student loans and see if you can lower that monthly payment. Mm-hmm. And that is a thing. Um, my wife has been making, I think, the exact same student loan payment for as long as we have been together, which is long, at least to me. Uh, so I think that might be a thing that we go and look at because we tend to just sort of like, yeah, that's the payment we make. We're going to make that every month, not realizing that, yes, there are programs out, this, out there that are designed to help you not have to pay that amount if you've been doing exactly what she's been doing. So I'm excited to do that, uh, that two-minute check and see what sort of rate we might be able to uh, come away with. So there's no origination fee, um, no other fees. Um, mm-hmm. You can even combine loans into one payment and, and maybe get a better rate. Ernest makes it easy. Um, plus, Ernest customer service has gotten a 9.4 out of 10 on Trustpilot. If you're a soccer player and you got 9.4 out of 10 for a performance, you'd be doing pretty well. Um, right now, you can get a $100 cash bonus if you refinance a student loan with Ernest. If you go to ernest.com slash TSS. That's a hundred dollars cash bonus when you refi your student loan. That's fancy talk for refinance. Mm-hmm. Um, at earnest.com slash TSS. Not available in all states. Taylor, I will leave you with the details and the terms and conditions. 
Thanks for that. Uh, one more time, visit earnest.com slash TSS for more details. Terms and conditions apply. Earnest student loan refinance loans are made by Earnest Operations, LLC, NMLS, uh, number 1204917. California Financing Law License, number 6054788, 303nd Street, Suite 401 North, San Francisco, California, 94107. Visit earnest.com slash licenses for a full list of licensed states. So what was that California financing law license number again? Thank you very much to Ernest for sponsoring today's episode. And obviously, that license number was 6054788. Uh, Nothing better than reading streams of numbers on a show. It works really well. (laughs) It's the best. It's Uh the best. Um, Okay. Cavezzi wants to know. Cavezzi Mm -hmm. wants to know, which team underachieved and which team overachieved the most this year? And separate question, what happened to Leicester at the end of the year? A lot of people ask that question. Um, so we'll definitely get to that. But let's start yeah. with overachieving and underachieving, Taylor. You got any uh, any nominations? I do. Uh, unfortunately, in terms of putting it off until later, my answer is Leicester City. <laughs> like, For overachieved? And underachieved. Like, oh, interesting. I, th- I think to some extent they really are the perfect answer here because it's their highest finish uh, in the league since winning the league, obviously. Uh, but simultaneously, it's them being in the Champions League for most of the season, then the restart happens and they're on that skid and they finish outside those places. And I think at the beginning of the season, if you told them you're going to qualify for the Europa League, you're going to finish fifth, are you good with that? I think most Leicester fans would have said yeah. yes, absolutely. High five. But three months ago, if you told them that, I don't think they would have taken it. So it's a strange yeah. overperforming and underperforming situation all at once. Uh, to more specifically, more straightforward answer the question, I think Sheffield United are probably the consensus answer when it comes to overachieving in the Premier League. Yes, they were a lot of um, a lot of people's picture just finished bottom because they seemed yep. unfashionable when they came up, right? Mm-hmm. I think if people had done more research and more watching and seen what Chris Wilder was doing, then they might have been more favourable towards Sheffield United. But just in terms of, uh, yeah, everyone's general feeling about Sheffield United <laughs> when they came up. Um, <laughs> not only have they played some really interesting football, like they've got that overloading the wings thing and so many goals are about like getting to the end line and cutting it back. Um, even David McGoldrick got a, got a goal um, later, <laughs> later in the season. Um, Sheffield United definitely overachieved. Mm-hmm. Underachieved, you could make an argument for Arsenal just because yep. they're such a big team and to not even finish in the European places, is a, it's a big miss, right? It's a big, big miss for a team of that size. But I'm still Team Arteta, right? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm ride or die for the Arteta style of football. I think in the long run, this will have been worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think anytime you have a sort of situation like Arsenal, to some extent Tottenham as well, you have to look at it as like before sacking, after sacking, and there yeah. are still reasons to the have S&S. concern. Exactly. There's still reasons to have concern about Arteta and what he's doing and if the players have truly bought in. But I think for the most part, we have seen signs that it's working, that players have bought in, and that he's having a positive impact. So though they finish outside of the European places... I think they're in a much stronger position now than they were at the beginning of the season, certainly. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think I would not quite put them in underachiever, but I certainly wouldn't put them in overachiever uh, achiever either. Okay, so the second part of this, mm-hmm. what happened to Leicester towards the end of the year? Oh, I had two more quick ones. I would say Crystal Palace to some extent uh, since the restart. I think they won. they won their first game since the restart and have not won a game since then. So I think... 
they didn't necessarily like finish in a place that's very odd, finishing 14th. But still, I think for how bad their form has been, I'm going to say they underachieved a little bit. Uh, now we can move to Leicester. I just wanted to give a quick shout to uh, Crystal Palace for their lack of consistency in performance. I'm sure they loved it. Um, so uh-huh. <laughs> Leicester City, this is the most asked question apart yeah. from Christian Pulisic-related questions. Yes. Um, what happened to Leicester City at the end of the year? I would argue this actually goes back a little further than Project Restart, right? I think the mm-hmm. the wheels were wobbling a little bit um, before Project Restart. Um, but there are still lots of reasons why Leicester struggled, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any one specific reason that explains it all, right? So don't expect an aha moment. But I think there are lots of little individual reasons. And the mm-hmm. number one I would pick is injuries to key players. Yep. I think Ricardo Pereira's attacking forays from right back were absolutely key to part of what Leicester were doing. His knee injury, I want to say it was an ACL injury in March, really was a disaster for this team because there's no one as good as him to replace. Uh, Justin James or James Justin, I apologise, Double J, um, playing right back in his his place, um, might be a fine player in the future, right? He's a young guy. But Ricardo Pereira was like one of those guys that was going to be attracting big, 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 big bids, right? Mm -hmm. So missing missing Ricardo Pereira, I think, is key to Leicester's drop off in form um i've got a couple other reasons but i'll uh i'll, I'll step aside just in case you've got any taylor i mean w- sticking with the injuries for a moment i think you can't move away from how important james madison is to the yes. attack and creativity and fluidity and possession that this team enjoy at times and i think to not have james madison for this closing stretch you saw him looking forlorn on the sidelines in the stands yesterday uh, in street clothes, not in you know soccer clothes because he's not going to be playing. Um, but I think not having him as well really limits what they're able to do in their attack, and it kind of forces them to change it up in a way that I think that is a strength of Leicester under Brendan Rodgers is they do certain things very, very well, very, very consistently. And when you lose one of those players that allows you to do that, you obviously then sacrifice that consistency, and you see the results uh, start to slide. I would argue if you look at what happened to Hamza Chowdhury um, mm-hmm. against Manchester United, when he's basically trying to make a turn very deep in his own half and make something happen and progress the ball up the field and gets tackled and Manchester United win that penalty kick. Um, I would argue if you look at that game as well, there's lots of moments when Yuri Tillemans just doesn't... I, I really like Yuri Tillemans, but he's not necessarily a creative player, right? So when you've got that midfield of Ndidi, Chowdhury and Tillemans that Leicester fielded against Manchester United... It was really missing a James Madison, right? It was really mm. missing someone with a bit of creativity, um, like that eye for a pass that no one else, no one else can see. Um, and once Madison's out of that lineup, it becomes very um, unimaginative in midfield. Let's put it that yep. way. And mm-hmm. what Leicester was so good at was moving, like essentially winning the ball high or moving the ball really quickly from back to front. But once you've missing that player that connects it all and picks out the pass that no one sees, once that guy's missing or your marauding right and your marauding right back is missing, suddenly the whole thing falls apart. So what we can say is maybe the Leicester squad. Um, doesn't have a lot of depth in terms of its high, high end players that are capable of competing for the top four. That it would be my other big one, yeah, is the lack of depth there. I mean, exemplified by Wes Morgan starting this final yes. game against Manchester United. That <laughs> yeah. is because of the red card to Soyunju, so there's a grain of salt there. But also that red card comes from Soyunju making a silly mistake. And, and I think to some extent it's the Johnny Evans thing of defending as an individual in those moments can lead to problems and it can lead to sort of tunnel vision. Uh, and I think that when you then lose a player like Soyunju, you're relying on Wesley Morgan to come in. Wesley Morgan, who I don't think looked very... Very 
like as fit as we've seen him looked and certainly didn't look up to the pace of things at times, I think the depth is a major issue there, or at least the lack of depth, I should say. I'm pretty confident he's retiring, right? Wasn't this a lot of these were like the Wes Morgan Memorial? Uh, you won the Premier League in 2015-16 games. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, there's yeah. a lot of like love for West Morgan. He's with, 36. With, yeah. with good good reason. Yeah, but I think he's I think he's hanging up the boots pretty soon. Uh, ben Chilwell, of course, has been missing for a lot of these final few games mm. as well. He's had a foot injury of some sort, I believe. And he's Luke... had a I want to move to Chelsea issue. Yeah, <laughs> I think. Um, is it Luke Roberts, the young left back, who's come in and replaced him? And again, has looked like really good little flashes. Like I've seen him get himself out of get himself out of tight situations a few times, but he's still not Ben Chilwell, right? And here's the the bigger overarching Luke thing. Luke Thomas. Luke Thomas, you're right. Yeah. Sorry, Luke Thomas. Um, the bigger overarching thing I think is this might be a Brendan Rodgers problem. Is I remember that Liverpool team making a really fast, strong start to the season under Brendan Rodgers. And it was all about, like, we are more intense than you. We play at a higher pace than you. We will steamroll you. And that works for, like, two-thirds of the season. And then the final third of the season, um, especially after Christmas when you have to play a lot of games all at once, that that level of intensity isn't quite possible to keep hitting. And I think that might just be a problem with how Brendan Rodgers, what he asks of his teams, essentially. It's not possible to do that for a full season without a really, really, really deep squad. I forgot that because you're right. I think that's also a hallmark of his time at Swansea before Liverpool of start strong, kind of blitz everybody. Nobody saw this coming. And then there's a fade towards the back half as teams figure yeah. you out. Injuries hit. You don't have the depth. And I think, yeah, that very much applies to Leicester this season as well. I wouldn't even say it's teams figuring you out. It's more that you're just not capable of doing it at the high intensity you were doing it. You know what I'm saying? So you're almost like a, a slower, sadder version of yourself. Like an, oh. like an old Wes Morgan. <laughs> Speaking of slower and sadder, <laughs> should we talk Leighton Baines? Oh, yes. Another player who is retiring yeah. officially, right? Um, Robert's I stepped, question. I stepped on your West Morgan joke to make the same joke about Leighton Baines. I apologize. Talent borrows, Taylor. Talent borrows. <laughs> Robert says or asks, with Leighton Baines playing his last match for Everton, how do you view his career? Mm-hmm. Uh, fine. Um, I think there's two things there. I think he is sort of in his own category of players of a big name that never really got that move that we all expected him to get in terms of moving to one of those big, big, big teams. Never really lit it up in that sort of setting as well. So I think in the end of the day, it's sort of like, yeah, he's like an English left back who played for like, yeah, a team like Everton and didn't go that far. To some extent, I don't think his career will be remembered that much. I think he could well be a good manager and I'm not trying to diminish what he did. He might be like he, many will probably say he was a great player and a great left back. It's just sort of, unless you're an Everton fan or maybe an England fan, I'm I'm curious to hear what you think Uh, about that. He went to Euro 2012 mm -hmm. and I want to say the 2014 World Cup, but yeah. I will say, with all respect to Leighton Baines, him being the starting left back was always a little bit like, all right, this is what we've got. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like I, I always quite liked him, but he was never like a Roberto Carles or Danny Helvez world beater, right? What Leighton Baines was good at was essentially swinging in a really consistently nice cross, right? So he could take. Mm-hmm. I think he took a lot of set pieces for Everton. Um, he also really would deliver nice crosses from deep uh, from left back, but I feel like that was sort of the main. That was his the main thing about his game, right? It wasn't like he could dribble at you and beat you. Um, he was more sort of dependable with the added bonus of a really nice cross. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. And I think like if Leicester hadn't won the title that season, 
and they'd come maybe second. Like I think I'd put Jamie Vardy in the same category of a player who is like consistently good and does like good things in good moments, but maybe never reach that top top tier. But Vardy has that Premier League winners medal. Leighton Baines is not. Jamie Vardy also, I believe, just won the Golden Boot again. Well, there's that too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, because the world conspired to make sure Danny Ings could not win it. <laughs> but there there was a thing with Leighton Baines of like, okay, so he was at Wigan, then he went to Everton, mm. and there was definitely two or three years where, where there was always like, in his mid to late 20s, will he yeah. make the big move to, say, a Manchester United or a, mm-hmm. um, a more title-challenging team than Everton? And in the end, the answer was just no, right? Yep. He just didn't. There, there it is. Yeah, I mean, that, that is really what it comes down to is that he doesn't make that move. So I think we don't then see him performing in the Champions League or performing more consistently with England. I do think that that is a part of what it takes to get into that England team is sort of – I saw somebody write like rubbing shoulders with the elite of the elite, which is I think then leads to the speculation that Grealish will, will want to move. Uh, but that, that's where I am with Leighton Baines is I think he will be like – in terms of how I will view his career in the long run, it will probably be like, yeah, he was, he was pretty good, right? He was pretty good. Like, I think I'll end up having to ask Daryl how he was, is about I, where it is. I would also say there's definitely a recency bias here, and I'll bet there are Everton fans remembering like a really strong five seasons where he was one of the best left-backs in the league, and that, yep. that might be true, and it's probably just faded from my memory, and I think of him more as a 35-year-old left-back because that's the last time we saw him, right? Yeah, I really don't have much else to add. I just feel bad because like he's a long-standing servant for Everton, and I'm sure you're absolutely right. There are, there are fans there who love him and are going to be sad when he's not there or will be sad when he's not there. But I just I don't have that connection. So for me, it's the player who was linked with a bunch of moves, but they never really happened, was yeah. very good in free kicks, and occasionally I was afraid of in that regard. But aside from that, I don't think I have like specific memories of Leighton Baines' career or enough to make, then make me feel like I know exactly how he'll be viewed in the long run. Let's end on a positive. Consistent haircut. Very consistent hairstyle and haircut. (laughs) All right, next question is from Joel Garvery. What is the reason for the big gap between the top two, Liverpool and Man City, and everyone else? And who has the best chance of closing that gap? Mm. So I think a, a big reason for the gap relates to consistency. And I think if you look at managerial tenure, tenures in the Premier League, I think I you're in is, That's fine, too. Uh, Jurgen Klopp is the third longest serving Premier League manager. Pep Guardiola is the fifth. And I, and I do think, though that's not to say they've been there for 20 years, I think when you're trying to like build a specific style, build a specific philosophy, you have to have the time and the backing to make that happen. And I think Jurgen Klopp has certainly got that at Liverpool. Uh, Pep has at Man City. But with pretty much every other team, you've got new managers coming in. They're still trying to figure out their style on a lot of different squads. You've got a lot of different players from different managers who've been there previously. And I think you don't have that same level of squad harmony and squad belief. On top of that, I would then say that you don't really have crisis, quote-unquote, situations with either team this season. There are worries about uh, what's going to happen with Lirisana at Man City, or have they replaced Fernandinho properly, or do they need an another center back but there aren't those this player wants out this player hates it there is Pep really going to leave things are falling apart sort of drama you have little side stories here and there but not really a lot when it comes to Man City and even fewer I think when it comes to Liverpool and to some extent if you're not having crisis but you are having consistency and solidarity I think that's the recipe for having that strong Premier League campaign from start to finish yeah I'd agree I think that the the reason that they're the big two and there's the gap between them and everyone else 
Um, I'm essentially going to say the same thing you did, but in a slightly different way. With an I, accent, obviously. I would argue, yeah, it just sounds smarter, right? Um, <laughs> it's really unfair. I don't, I don't deny that. <laughs> um, I would argue that they are at the peak of a cycle, right? Man City are just over a peak, and Liverpool are right at the top of a peak mm-hmm. of a cycle, um, where there's a managerial philosophy, a style of play, a system, something that everyone's bought into. And, you know, you take years to build towards that and to refine it. And they've both hit the peak, and it's at its it's it's at its at its uh, most perfect mm-hmm. moment, right? With Liverpool yeah. right now, and I would say the season prior with Man City, and we're seeing just slightly on the downslope this year, this past season, with Man City. Whereas, like you said, other teams they haven't had anyone in place as long, implementing the philosophy and the style and the system uh, for as long. So there's no way for anyone to catch up to this firmly established philosophy and style of play that's happening at Liverpool and at Man City. And then I, I think somehow this hadn't really crystallized for me until you, you were you were sort of talking about it. But it is fair to say that Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp are the two best managers in the world right now, right? Yeah, I guess. I mean, right, you you bounce around and, like, maybe Zidane is in that conversation, but him aside, it's those two. And I think yeah. that also, when you have the two best managers who are very, like, well-insulated and kind of built into their clubs at this point, I think that also can't be overlooked, whereas a lot of other Premier League teams have, I mean, Arteta... Uh, Lampard, Solskjaer are all former players who are still trying to kind of like figure things out with their new teams. Mourinho is Mourinho. Nuno is is with Wolves, but you're not getting at that level. Like I think it still is something to be said for just the sort of caliber of the pedigree of those two managers. Also, a huge part for why they stand alone together. Uh, so I would argue that just reading the table, the third place team, Manchester United, yep. has the best chance of closing that gap. It's either Man United or Chelsea for me. But yeah, I, I would agree for, I'm guessing, the reasons you're about to uh, enumerate. Um, well, I, I just, if, if you look at that Man United team, ever since Bruno Fernandes came in and then Mason Greenwood um, 2.0 added on top, if that is the basis of the team, it only needs like a little extra depth and a couple things here and there, like a Jaden Sancho here or, you know what I mean? Like to, to, I think, really start challenging. I'm not sure... Um, that it will be to the level of Liverpool and Manchester City, but it'll be closer next year than it was this year. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think I think actually I would I would back what you said that I would put Man United over Chelsea because Chelsea are obviously going to spend and they're going to strengthen that attack for sure. But I also think if you look at the kind of basic starting squad for Manchester United versus Chelsea, I do think that there are more question marks, especially around the defense and the goalkeeper spot. David De Gea hasn't been solid, but I think nine or ten times out of ten, you would take De Gea over Kepa at least right now, uh, and even with their current form. So I think you're probably right then that Chelsea have a bit more rebuilding to do and need to sign a few more players. Manchester United certainly need to sign some players and need that squad depth. But if they brought in Jadon Sancho and nobody else, I think they're probably a stronger 11 than Chelsea bringing in uh, all uh, Hakimi and uh, Werner. And even if they bring Kai Havertz, there are still those defensive question marks that, yeah, probably is still Manchester United ahead of Chelsea. Do you mean Ziyech? What did I say? Hakimi. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's Hakim Ziyech and then Ashraf Hakimi. I get this too confused. <laughs> Two quick takes on Chelsea. Mm-hmm. Um, one, I don't know if anyone noticed, but obviously I watched the uh, the Chelsea Wolves game this past mm-hmm. weekend. Caballero started in goal. Yep. Which oh, yeah. actually makes sense against Wolves. Do you remember how many times we've talked on this show about a Wolves tactic is to hang that ball up at the far post for Raul Jimenez to attack? 
imagine Wolves doing that to Chelsea and Kepa not coming off his line. I mean, I, I know what you're saying. I just, I don't necessarily agree with the idea that it's because of anything Wolves do. I think it's very much what Kepa does and does not specifically do. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I was not surprised to see that. I'll be surprised if we see Kepa again this season. But I'm saying Lampard pro- possibly looked at like what's one of Wolves' main tactics. Um, yeah. And what will Kepa do when that happens? Probably stand on his line. <laughs> Yep, and get screamed at. Yeah, so let's start Caballero. It also suggests it also suggests that maybe Caballero's in line to start in the FA Cup final, right? Yes. So that's interesting. And there's other here's here's just an idea I want to float out there. I keep hearing from all kinds of people, Chelsea need to sign defenders. Chelsea need to sign defenders, right? And it might be true, but I still think it's maybe a stylistic thing. Um is just that Chelsea play quite open and mm-hmm. it almost doesn't matter who's back there. There's gonna be goals conceded. Um, I mean, I, I know what you mean, but I would argue that like we saw Virgil van Dijk single-handedly prevent goals at times in like 2v1 scenarios this season. Oh, they should, the they should sign him the Premier League. Yeah, I think they probably should. But I, <laughs> I do think there's something to be said for if you're playing a very open attacking style, if you can get defenders who are very, very good at 1v1 defending and sort of stifling counterattacks, then that facilitates that approach as opposed to, yeah, these guys are more or less capable of handling it. Let's just score more goals and make sure that we don't concede as many. Uh, so, yeah, I, yeah. I, like, I'm not saying they need to like rebuild their entire defense, but I think that I, I would take Harry Maguire and Victor Lindelof over uh, Andreas Christensen and Rudiger. Th- that might be my bias. I'm wondering what you would say to that. I say just put Matt Miazga back there and then 10 attackers. Hey, I'm fine with that. Not even a goalkeeper. Not even a goalkeeper. <laughs> <laughs> it's a risky formation. We'll see how it goes. Are you ready for today's next sponsor? I believe I am. Um, today's show is sponsored by Roman. So if you've been struggling with a condition like erectile dysfunction, first of all, do not be embarrassed. It happens to people. Uh, Second of all, you can get treatment and you don't have to go and visit a doctor in order to get treatment because our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor, a licensed doctor in your state, all from the comfort of home. Mm-hmm. That means all you have to do is grab your phone or computer. You complete a free online visit. You'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. I'm assuming that then means that you would need a smartphone. No rotary telephones uh, when making an online visit. I think you should give it a try. Just see what We'll happens. see what happens. Yeah. I'm sure there's a way to do that. I'm sure a hacker could figure that out. Smartphones recommended, though. Smartphones recommended. Yeah. If the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship you your medication with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime you want. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com slash TSS for a free online visit and free two-day shipping, as Daryl said. That's GetRoman.com slash TSS for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be bashful. Do be Roman and get that treatment. Uh, And in two days, not a bad turnaround. Thank you to Roman for sponsoring today's show. Uh, we got four more questions, Taylor. We do. We do indeed. Who? Mark Bajarski. Mark Bajarski. Mm -hmm asks who from the bottom half of the table this season stands the best chance to get into the Europa League places next season uh I had a long think about this and I'm not sure I if I have an think. answer that I'm confident in other than Newcastle if the takeover bid goes through and even then I think they're going to struggle so my 
number one answer would be Everton, specifically because of Carlo Ancelotti, and I feel like he knows how to get a team playing in a way that will at least have them move up the table a little bit, and I think that does put them in a stronger position to then talk about Challenge 4 Europa League. Everton also have money to spend, right? They do have rich owners. Remember, this is yeah. a team that was happy to drop £50 million on Guilfi Sigurdsson. So yeah. <laughs> Everton do have money to spend, and they have Carlo Ancelotti at the wheel. Um, as they say. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Everton strengthened. And I was quite impressed with what Ancelotti was doing anyway, right? Mm-hmm. They were looking a little more solid. If you can have a team with uh, Sigurdsson and Gomez as your central midfield and still manage to win some games, I think that's pretty impressive. It definitely is. <laughs> um, the other team, um, I've been convinced. Uh, Sam Ty convinced me even more when he appeared on the Total Sock Show last oh, week. Oh, I know who you're going to say. It's Southampton Football Club. Of course it is. Of course it is. Weston McKenney's future home, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> That's now an official transfer rumour, by the way. Um, did you see the other rumour, though, that did not make me as happy? What's that? That, I forget who they're, oh, they're, I think they're going to sell a little more top, uh, top Rock, which means, or no, I forget who they're going to sell, but they're going to sell, oh, it's on Kaban, there it is, uh, Kabak, who then will allow them to keep Weston McKenney as their, like, marquee player. I oh, saw Shaka, that reporting this weekend. Yeah, that Shaka will basically be able to hold on to him and build around Weston McKinney. I was very confused for a minute, because I was thinking, none of those players play for Southampton. What's, yeah. What is happening here? Um, <laughs> no, yeah, I'm more so concerned about Weston McKinney. <laughs> so I think, um, we were talking earlier about, you know, Klopp and uh, Guardiola, they have a style um, the team is at their peak of like completely understanding and being completely bought into that style. I think we're getting there with Southampton and Ralph mm-hmm. Hasenhutl, and there are lots of players who really fit the system. Danny Ings fits the system. That's why he's doing so well in it. Well in it. Nathan Redmond fits the system. That's why he's doing so well in it. Ryan Bertrand fits the system, and so on and so on and so on, right? So mm-hmm. um, in some ways, we've just selected the 11th and 12th place teams as the two, the two bottom half teams who might uh, break into the Europa League spots next year. But I also think that's genuinely accurate those are the best two placed yeah i think and i think southampton probably the better shout in terms of the quality of their play and the consistency of their play but then with everton it's mostly me thinking ancelotti will like he won't want to stay mid-table he won't be like yeah 14th is fine in the premier league Uh, that is not the sort of his background his pedigree so i'm going to assume that he has expectations of pushing higher competing at a higher level or maybe he moves what are the other these are top half eyebrows yeah, not bottom half. <laughs> Jake Lee wants to know, mm-hmm. why isn't there an NFL Red Zone-style channel for European soccer games when all are happening at once? My understanding is NFL Red Zone is you just watch one channel and they bounce around to where the action is happening. Is that right? They, they do. It's worth, because Daryl might not be as familiar and other people might not as well. Like, Daryl, do you know what the Red Zone is? Because that is fundamental to answering this question. Um, oh, okay. I didn't even think about this, but the end zone is where you score... Mm-hmm a touchdown i'm gonna guess the red zone is as you're approaching the end zone it's like the danger zone when you're within 20 yards there we go and that's literally what the channel was meant to be is that when a team enters that like segment of the field where they're more likely to score you switch to that game when a team is like 19 yards from getting a touchdown then they'll they'll switch to that one when the next team is in field goal range they'll switch to that one but you can't really do that in soccer how many times have we been watching a game daryl knowing a goal was coming and it's the team that end up conceding the goal that are possessing for five minutes straight. And we're both like, are you sure they're about to concede? And then they do. Yeah. It's so quick that what you'll end up getting, in my opinion, is a sort of whip around show, which they do have in England, right? That's the Chris Kamara, like famously they throw to him and he doesn't know well, what's happening. Yeah, but the brilliant thing with that show is they don't have any of the live footage, right? So right. it's literally yeah. just people. It's like, it's like televised radio is what it is. <laughs> yeah, but, but I think my 
point more so is that what you'll end up getting is sort of, let's go to this game where this has happened, and yeah. then you'll go to that game. It's tougher to sort of know in the moment, oh, Arsenal are really knocking on the door, let's cut to them, because they're probably going to score. I agree, but you could do that, right? I mean, you could just show the goal like 30 seconds after it happened, and I think mm-hmm. no one's going to be any the wiser. No, I mean, I guess that's true. You could, yeah, you could sort of go back and be like, we've got a goal coming. You might want to pay attention, yeah. which is a thing I think that like you do sometimes get with Red Zone when they miss when they miss plays. So maybe from that perspective, but I don't think it would have that sort of I'm sitting here and really understanding everything that's happening because I'm seeing all of the teams in their strongest attacking positions. Or if you don't see them, then you know that they never got into that. I think it gives you a better overall idea than I think you'd probably be able to get from a soccer style version of that. I do know that this has been tried. I think um, uh, TUDN, TUDNA, TUDNA, the the artist formerly known as Univision, um, (laughs) they do this for the Champions League, right? You can get this via Fubo TV, where they will, uh, when all the Champions League matches are happening at once, they'll just pan around and show you show you the goals. I don't know if it's called Red Zone or not. And I do know that they've tried this in Germany with the Bundesliga when all the games happen at once, where they'll they'll try it and they'll and they'll bounce around. Um, I agree with you that it just doesn't work quite as well for soccer because it's not obvious when goals are coming. Um, a, a goal could be when you're defend <laughs> when you're defending a corner kick, you might be most likely to score if Kevin De Bruyne is leading the counter attack, <laughs> for example. Um, I'd also argue there's a huge problem. Let's say in England, right? The TV rights are spread out amongst mm-hmm. like three different broadcasters, so yep. you can't get everybody on the same page because everybody owns different. Everybody owns different games, so there's no way to uh, there's no way to bring it all together in that way. And not and not to take this apart even further, but uh, with that in mind, like getting everybody on the same page, it's also worth noting that the question here is when all the games are happening at once, which doesn't really happen all that often. Just like, the last you, day you of have, the season, right? Exactly. I mean, sometimes you'll have like four kickoffs at the same time, but even then, does that sustain that sort of channel? Whereas with the NFL, you know, you're getting a ton of games at this time and a ton of games at this time. That's when it tends to be the most popular to watch it. What I do wish we had in this country is the sort of retroactive version of this, which would be match of the day. I do wish NBC Sports did their own version of match of the day that really like was the equivalent of the British version where you're getting really good analysis, really good breakdowns of what happened in this game and why it happened and you're still getting those highlights, I think that would be far more digestible than trying to jump around from game to game as quickly as you can. They still do it sometimes, right? I think so, but I think you don't get... At least the last time I watched, it was mostly just like, here are highlights of that game, and now here are highlights of the next game without as much of the analysis that I really uh, enjoy and appreciate. Yeah, the BBC version, there was a time when the analysis was just useless. Um, mm. Like, it was at its peak when I think Newcastle signed Hatem Ben Arfa and Alan Shearer's analysis was, who's, who's ever heard of him? <laughs> right? Um, Good stuff. But I think it's really improved the last the last few years. Like, mm. you genuinely, they, they will point things out that I I hadn't spotted and it's really mm. informative and enlightening sometimes. So, yeah. yeah, Match of the Day has done a really good job. I would bet that, especially what's happened in the UK, the Gary Neville, Jamie Carragher stuff where they really went, do a lot of analysis and go into detail, I think that's forced BBC Match of the Day to up mm. their game a little bit. Yeah, that would make sense to me. I do love the the Neville-Carragher dynamic. Uh, I did enjoy Neville and Mika Richards uh, this weekend. They had some good back and forth as well. Did they? What was going on? 
Oh, I think I think it was like 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 Gary Neville was talking about you know what Manchester United do to, to improve from here and how strong they've been. And Mika Richards was like, and you know they they like like they like a consistent performer in getting penalties. Well done to them for that. Like it was just like good little like back and forth jabs. Uh, uh, Mika Richards threw a lot at Roy Keane as well, who seemed to more or less enjoy it. You can never really tell with him. All right, let's move on. Final two questions are both sure. Christian Pulisic related. Mm-hmm. Alex Campbell wants to know, what are your thoughts on Chelsea finishing the season by winning a game where Pulisic played poorly? Did you see this game, Taylor? Wolf, I did. Uh, well, I saw enough of it to say that I, I kind of dispute the question a little bit. Same. I don't, think he Same. Was, I don't think he played poorly, necessarily. I don't think he played as well as we have seen him play recently. Yep. But I think we still saw a lot of him. Basically, we saw him doing a lot of what he has been asked to do consistently. And I think this time he just got more attention for it from a defensive standpoint. I think... Pulisic and even though Chelsea won this game um, Mm 2-0 it probably won't have escaped most people's notice that this game was kind of dull because this is what Wolves do right I've made this argument before that people maybe have uh, a misunderstanding of Wolves because you see the Adama Traore highlights and you see their Raul Jimenez highlights can I I jump in there for a moment yeah Uh, just to say I completely agree with you and I'm not trying to step on your point I it is a thing that I was not aware of until you brought it up. It is the lazy shorthand way to talk about Wolves. I constantly see it as like the most exciting team, the attacking flair, Raul Jimenez, you never know what he's going to do. And it's just like, yeah, you're focusing on the two attackers and not the eight yeah. outfield players who do the defensive job. It's, it's a really interesting thing that the narrative on them is free-flowing, exciting soccer and watching them and talking to you about them. Not quite a fair yeah. summary of how Wolves play. And it is exciting for that two minutes when they counterattack. Right, yeah. but for the mm. most part, what Wolves are really good at the reason they, you know, consistently for the last two seasons now have finished top half, is that they can absolutely stifle a game. Right, so yep. Wolves can go out in a a three four three that becomes a five four one or a five three two. I think against Chelsea it was a it was like a five four one. Right, and they do a really good job of acting as a big unit, right? So the three centre-backs stick tightly together, often the full-backs stick to them, and then the midfielders will absolutely clog up space. Everyone's really good at stepping to people when they need to to close them down, fouling people when they need to to close them down, and that is what Christian Pulisic ran into in this game. And he wasn't the only Chelsea player either, right? So no. he basically just got tackled and fouled a lot because that's what, that's what Wolves managed to do. But even in amongst all that, for Chelsea's second goal... There it is. It was Christian yep. Pulisic who was very involved in the move because it was him that burst through the middle and left a couple of players behind him, right? He broke mm-hmm. Wolves' very organized, very hard-to-beat defensive shape by bursting through midfield. And he either gets tackled or fouled. And I don't know if he gets the pass away or if the tackle redirects the ball uh, to Mason Mount, but then Mount receives, then gives it to Giroud, and Giroud yep. rounds the keeper and scores, right? So mm-hmm. even if it's a mostly uneventful game for Pulisic, he still had that one moment where he, he opened up a really defensively well-structured team. Yeah, and even there are times when he does get the ball and you can see Wolves put an extra defender over there or they have two people who are sort of keeping an eye on him and that's therefore one fewer players keeping an eye on somebody else. And I think you could make that argument too that if he's drawing another defender, even if he's not being successful in some of those take-ons, he's still pulling Wolves out of position. He's still opening up space for other teammates. That's not quite what we're looking for when it comes to Christian Pulisic. Obviously, we prefer goals and assists versus, well, you can't really measure his influence here, but I promise you it's there. (laughs) But... I then wouldn't say that was so far as going that he played poorly necessarily. No. Yeah, I think he um, just played against Wolves and even yeah. still then managed to have an impact. Um, so I so guess yeah. my, my, my thoughts, though, are like, yeah, that happens sometimes. Like teams win and their best player doesn't play very well. Not saying Pulisic is their best player, but that happens a lot. I, I would say Manchester United won with 
Bruno not having his strongest game. So I don't think that's that big of a deal, but it does then beg the question from Jurgen Klopp's smile is the question, <laughs> and I hope that's really who asked it as well. How can Pulisic further improve after his first Premier League season, Daryl so Grove? I want to start with the, the name of the person asking the question. Obviously, this is a yeah. Twitter name. I mentioned that at the top. I'm pretty sure this is a reference to the smile you that, think so? Klopp, that Klopp made after Pulisic yeah. dribbled through Liverpool, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, oh, I, I raised him. Smile. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I always forget that connection. That's yeah. right. He was I the first was one like, to right, bring then. him to Dortmund training, right? He brought right, a 16-year-old yeah. Christian Pulisic into Dortmund first-team training and then said nice things about how he fit in perfectly. Oh, oh I like yeah. Jurgen Klopp. So He's how nice. can Pulisic further improve mm. after his first Premier League season? I'll be honest, Taylor. I watch a lot of Pulisic. I love analysing players. I trust my own analysis. Mm-hmm. I feel weird sitting here trying to tell Christian Pulisic what he needs to do better after the, yep. the couple of months he's just had. I almost don't want to answer this question. I, I, I think the answer for me is he has to do it again. That, that's kind of where okay. I am, is that they're going to strengthen. There's going to be more options. This will be Frank Lampard's second season. The expectations will be higher. They won't have the, oh, there was an embargo. He got this player. We're not quite sure what's going to happen. Now it's they've qualified for the Champions League. They've made the FA Cup final, at least at this point. So they're going to like retool that attack. They're going to have stronger numbers. If Pulisic is still in there, cons- like consistently starting, I was about to say starting, which is a nice little portmanteau. Uh, if he's consistently starting, playing, having the impact with more options around him, then to me, he is improving because he's justifying that continued selection. And I think to some extent, that's what I want to see is consistency in him next season and not, oh, he's in this great run of form when he scored or assisted in three games, but then we don't really hear anything or see anything from him for three more games. I want to raise this one more time, especially given the fact that Lampard seems to have really slowly migrated to this 3-4-3 shape this season. I really think Timo Werner could be getting a lot of minutes on the left side of a front three. And I, re- I, I really would not have that- agreed. Say again? Sorry. I said I would not have agreed with you until these Kai Havertz rumors really seem to be picking up steam. I know that many Bundesliga fans will say he's more of a 10. He's being played as a 9 for Leverkusen. Havertz, yeah. But he, w- he would rather be a 10. But to your point, I, I don't think that necessarily fits what Chelsea are trying to do. I am assuming he's being brought in as an out-and-out striker which is then what I would have assumed Timo Werner was going to be. So then, yeah, to your point, if you're going with a 3-4-3 and you do have Kai Havertz and he is starting centrally, it's a lot of ifs, but that does then say, yeah, it's going to be Timo Werner yeah. challenging for one of those wing spots. Plus watch every other RB Leipzig game from this past season. Werner has essentially played left side of a front two or a front three. Right, yeah. That really mm-hmm. has been his domain, has been the left side of attack. So yeah. Pulisic may have a battle on his hands there. Are there any, are there any things where you watch Pulisic and think... I wish he did this more. Like, I remember I was talking earlier on about how um, he's given a license to run at people and to lose the ball, right? And if he gets Mm -hmm. tackled, it's fine because he's presented a threat. He's, like, ruffled the opposition. Chelsea might win the ball back. And it's actually, it's worth the trade-off of occasionally losing possession. So the one thing that just came to my mind is maybe if Pulisic gets better and better and better, then he'll have that same license, but he'll actually just essentially go by people more often than he loses possession. Yeah, I think that that would be that would be fine with me. Uh, to answer your question, the thing that I see most consistently written about him from a fan perspective, so massive grain of salt there. But if you read the kind of post-match threads uh, from Chelsea fans, 
The frustration with him seems to usually focus on his first touch and how it can be a little bit heavy, especially if he's not going at the uh, the attack. Yeah, if he's kind of turning and going in the same fluid motion or going at a, at a defense, it seems to be much more productive and consistent than, I guess, when he's under pressure back to goal, I think he can have a heavy touch here and there. That's one thing I've seen written. It's oh, like not if, he's, necessarily... if he's got like a right back right in his back pushing exactly. in and he receives yeah. the ball with his back to the right back. Yeah, which I guess is probably another way of say- saying like the physicality of if you've got yeah. a more aggressive defender in your back sort of knocking you around, that can then lead to a lack of control or a lack of focus, which then leads to a lack of control on the ball. So m- maybe that, but that one, like there aren't specific things that for me personally I have seen and been frustrated by because a lot of the stuff of occasionally getting tackled or losing the ball or having a, a shot when maybe he should have passed, that all to me again feels like things he has been told to do. He's been told go out there and make things happen and yeah. he's doing that and i just don't want to nitpick right because he's doing yeah. so so well that i don't want yep. to be the one sitting here well he could do this better yeah i always forget that daryl grove is very good about that i'm saying that to the listeners more more so than you daryl <laughs> uh but you are really good about that like i remember we did that that like we went on that film podcast once and they're like all right let's talk about the negatives and i think your response to that was like why why do we have to <laughs> ne- negative nitpick a movie like why can't we just praise the good stuff and move on that film we uh, all just enjoyed yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I do appreciate that about you. It's like, ah, do we need to? Why can't we just enjoy it? And if a situation arises that merits discussion, we'll discuss it. So that's it, Christian Pulisic. Keep making us happy next season. Yeah. That's what we, that's yeah. what we want. Or else. <laughs> or else. Mm-hmm. Or else we'll, we'll start a Ulysses Giannis campaign. Yes. And if people would <laughs> like to start the Ulysses Giannis campaign or the anti-Pulisic advertising <laughs> campaign... Where could they advertise, Daryl Grove? Is this really the segue you want, Tyler? Is this sure. really the segue you want? Why you not? Could, you could advertise mm-hmm. um, on the Athletics podcast. Do you know we're mm-hmm. not the only show in the Athletics network of podcasts? Yeah, and they did have a less assistant allocation disorder. Soccer's not the only sport in the no, Athletics network of podcasts. They've got throw ball, they've got bouncy ball, they've got stick ball, <laughs> all your American sports. <laughs> It took me a minute to decipher which sport you were talking about with which name, but I'm with you. They do. And 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 obviously when you sign up to The Athletic, you get access to all of that, but that also means that when you advertise with The Athletic, the people who listen to all of that content then have access to you. You sure do. Um, you can also target it to um, the city that you're in right now, right? So if you've got um, like a business that's locally focused, The Athletic has podcasts that are focused um, specifically on big American sports teams from that city. Um, to advertise um, on the show, you can go to theathletic.com slash podcast ads, and they'll show you, I believe, a full list of mm-hmm. um, each show and where it's sort of targeted at. I guess you can kind of figure out if there's a yeah. Buffalo Bills podcast, you can figure out what geographic area that's targeted at. Yeah, but you can fill out the very simple form. They'll get back to you right away. So once again, go to theathletic.com slash podcast ads. Uh, do that right now so you can build that Ulysses Yanez advertising campaign <laughs> ahead of schedule. Ulysses Yanez Senior might be on that. Decent chance. Decent <laughs> chance. I love his Twitter presence. I love his Twitter presence. Um, Me all right, too. Let, let's talk NWSL soccer. We yeah. have NWSL Challenge Cup champions. We sure do. And against all odds, really, it's the Houston Dash. No one would yes. have predicted this at the start of the season. No. 
Not even a little bit. It would have been North Carolina Courage. If you were going with your second most likely team, it was probably the Chicago Red Stars. So in that regard, they performed well by finishing <laughs> second. But yeah, I did not have Houston uh, making the run. And to some extent, I'm not even sure. Like, I guess we always knew Houston were going to make the knockout round since everybody did once Orlando <laughs> dropped. But it was still not a thing that I expected to see them go this far and look this st- strong from start to finish. So if, for people who don't know, the Houston Dash beat Chicago Red Stars 2-0 in the Challenge Cup final. An early goal from the penalty spot and a late goal on the breakaway. Um, I guess we're going to be talking about how Houston Dash did this, how yeah. they surprised us. Because to give you an idea of the, the type of team they are, they don't have any U.S. Women's National Team allocated players, right? They don't. And... and uh, uh, Grant made that point on his podcast yesterday, uh, and and I wanted to respond like that. Maybe there's a chance that that is a strength for them, interesting, because so many other teams do have those national team players, but those, they chose not to participate, and that can be disruptive. The obvious counter to that would be that Chicago and North Carolina have those players yeah. and brought all of them and still did not make it very far. So yeah, the Dash's so, opponent in the in the Challenge Cup final, they had Alyssa mm-hmm. Nyer in goal and Julia Hurts yep. playing centre back. Yep. Not bad. Not not a not a bad double double act there. Uh, but I think for Houston, not having those marquee players, maybe it's not like less of a distraction if they're not there. Maybe it's less like you've built your entire team around them, and then if that player isn't participating in the tournament, you're in a lot of trouble. But I think more likely it's just that then you build a squad of people who are going to work really really hard for the team, and that's a thing that I think they haven't done as successfully in seasons past, but certainly have this time around. Yeah, this is kind of a. Not an all-new, but a very new team, right? Like, right. for example, one of the major strengths of the Houston Dash, I, I noticed as I uh, rewatched the game again this morning, uh, the centre-back partnership of Norton and Oyster, Kathleen Norton and Megan Oyster, mm-hmm. really, really strong. Those two were brought in um, over this past off-season. This is a new centre-back pairing, so they will have played competitive games together for the first time when the Challenge Cup kicked off. Right. And one of them, I believe, was playing with broken ribs. Yeah, Megan Oyster has broke ribs earlier. Um, a fractured rib from the quarterfinals. Um, I think she Ow. missed the semifinals, but played in mm-hmm. played in the final and played just fine for my money. I am. I don't understand. The, the, cracked ribs hurt so bad and hurt everything. They make it hard to breathe. They make it hard to move. They make it hard to move even like one side of your body. I don't know how she played this final other than to say that she is wildly tougher than I <laughs> She was also, and I don't mean this to diminish Oyster, she was well protected by the way Houston defended. Um, well, there's that. So if you've, if yeah. you've got time for it, I'm going to launch into my how Houston dash done that kind of uh, uh, yeah, tactical I think I roundup before we talk goals. Um, so... On paper or on iPad, it's set up as a kind of a simple 4-3-3, right? The way Houston Dash play. But I think it's a little more complicated in that you've got Norton and Oyster as the two centre-backs. You've got the full-backs, Chapman and Hanson, and they don't really go much beyond the halfway line, right? They'll step up a little bit when, when Houston build out, so they've got some good angles for possession. But they don't go bombing forward. They don't leave the centre-backs exposed. And then sitting right in front of the centre-backs is Sophie Schmidt, who I'm guessing we're both familiar with from the World Cup, right? She's one of Mm -hmm. Canada's defensive midfielders. You do not pass Sophie Schmidt, right? She is there to stop you going anywhere at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and to take penalties, but mostly to stop you from doing anything you want. And I think, yeah, and that can mean dropping in between the two center backs if the situation requires, but also sort of holding that position just ahead of them to prevent any sort of fast break through the middle. I think routinely I saw Houston 
when they were possession, like in possession, but around midfield or a little bit further forward, you'd have them almost in more of a four-one-four-one, and it's always Sophie Schmidt sort of splitting that difference and closing those gaps to make sure that there are no sort of vulnerabilities yes, presented. Absolutely, yeah. So you protect the centre backs are protected from the sides by the full backs in front by Sophie Schmidt, right? Yep. And the other really interesting thing I think Houston would do in I've seen other teams do this, and I always quite like it. Um, so you've got the wingers, right? You've got Prince and Vasali are the two wingers. Um, you've got Rachel Daly up top. But when Houston apply pressure to the Red Stars, they don't send the wingers forward. They send the other central midfielders forward. Mm-hmm. It's Mewis and Groom. It just happens to be the two, uh, one goal scorer and one penalty winner, right? Yeah. So Mewis and Groom would push up alongside Daly, but uh, Vasali and uh, Prince would kind of mm-hmm. stay deep right? So that they don't get too stretched out. And I love it when teams do this. I think it's really, really effective. Yeah, because you basically then have to try to play your way through that that sort of now front three, but it's composed of the center forward and the two central midfielders, yeah. which is a challenge into in and of itself. But then if you try to play wide, there's depth there, there's defensive cover there. So it requires you to basically play wide and then play back centrally and then play wide again in very quick succession or have a player who is creative enough and good enough on the ball that she can pull in one or two of those defenders, extricate herself from that situation, and then open up that space. And that's not a thing Chicago had on the day. I'm not sure it's a thing they have on their roster. And I think that was a fundamental problem with their attack in this game, is that I think Houston really set themselves up in such a way to accentuate their defensive strengths and also, at the same time, really focus in on Chicago's attacking vulnerabilities. I would argue the only player capable of bringing it through any pressure and then trying to make something happen seemed to be Julie Hurts. Julie Hurts was doing a bit of a Franz Beckenbauer type thing, right? Where she just carry Mm -hmm. the ball out of the back and try and try and make something happen. And it was kind of a heroic effort, but it's it's not enough for just one player to be then uh, trying to, like take on three people and then play balls in behind the defense, right? Especially when there's not much space in behind that defense. Yeah, no, if you're looking for your center back to be your creative provider, it, it you're in a little bit of trouble already. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it also felt to me, we were talking about this off air, I felt like the front three of Chicago, so it's what, McCaskill, Smith, and Watt, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, McCaskill, Smith, and Watt. I couldn't tell you, I'm not that familiar with any of these players, right? But I couldn't tell you which one of them was a proper dedicated center forward because it felt like having three wingers up there to me. Yeah, yeah. No, explain what you mean by that for a moment, though. Like, why is that a different thing than, like, yeah, a striker is fast and runs in behind. A winger could do that, too. So, yeah, why not have one well, replace the other? They didn't, it didn't feel like there was a, uh, a target that they could aim at mm-hmm. that, like, could hold the ball up and, like, fight off Oyster and Norton and build something from there, right? It was always, I'm going to dribble at you and, that's, and I'm going to try and, like, make something happen that way. And it never really worked. I would agree. And I think when you're building for speed and sort of hitting on the counterattack or hitting on the break or hitting when there is a sort of like opportunity to expose a gap in the defense, you need that speed. You need that ability to run directly at goal. But if Houston are never really giving that up, it nullifies that approach almost entirely. And I think you did then see Chicago trying to look for sort of long diagonals or long balls over the top. It's an oversimplification, but I'm going to stick with it anyway. There were moments in this game when I wanted to say, like, you guys know you don't still have Sam Kerr, right? Like, <laughs> you don't have this player that you can hit over the top to, but also play it in a feed and she'll hold it up, but also rely on her individual brilliance to get through sort of packed defenses. And it almost felt like they were still trying the same stuff and just hoping that, well, we've got a platoon of attackers now. We'll use them to do what Sam Kerr did and we'll be fine. And that's just not the case. And 
I know that Chicago aren't that silly. I know they're not naive in their approach, but it felt that way at times in this game just because there was so little attacking versatility on display from the Red Stars. Well, speaking of maybe being naive, I would mm-hmm. argue that the arm right back, Chicago right back Kayla Sharples puts across yep. Kristen Mewis to pull her back after she's accelerated away. That was a naive thing to do so early in the game to give Houston that, that penalty kick. Not just because it's a penalty. I maintain that could have been a red card because I know she's we have dogs so now. That's the thing is that she's very clearly just like throwing an arm up to be like, I'm beaten. This is going to be a goal. I'm going to pull you back. Like yeah. that is deliberate denial of a goal scoring opportunity, but it's also not from at least like sliding in and trying to make a play and taking out the player. Like she's just pulling a player back. That could have been a red in oh, yeah, my opinion. You're right. Yeah. Cause the double jeopardy thing is if you make an honest attempt to play the ball. Right. And right. that doesn't it's- extend to just grabbing Muris by the shoulder and hoping to pull it down. Yeah, and to clarify, like that, this is not what happened. But like we've seen this before, where if a shot is going in, a defender just swa- like swats it off the line. That's going to be a red card still, even if we have double jeopardy, dog so what have you. It still is. You're not making a play on the ball with your body. You're using your hand to stop a goal. That's not allowed. So it's a red card. This could have been a red to me. But either way, I'm with you that it is naivete in the moment to sort of go for that because I would still then say that Christy Mewis, she has centering options. She might take a shot to the near post, but it's not. Quite the same as she's in on goal in a breakaway 1v1. Yeah. I've got to do something. Yeah, she's at an angle, right? Yeah. Um, all right, so we, I don't want to spend too much time blaming Sharples because she's still a young player, right? She's definitely going to have learned from that experience. Hopefully the lesson yeah. is don't ever do it again. Um, <laughs> but let's talk about the absolute brilliance of Christy Mewis in this goal. Sure. Um, I very much enjoyed her 29 minutes on the field. She mm-hmm. subbed out just before the half an hour mark with an injury. Um, it struck me re-watching this goal... Um, it starts with, once again, Houston Houston dashing hopes, which is probably what they should be called, um, as their defense is back. And sh- I think Chicago try and cross it in, and I want to say Oyster steps and wins it, right? And Houston tries to play out from there. It looks to me like they try twice to get the ball into Krista Mewis. Yeah. Before yeah, she receives it, right? They, mm-hmm. so, I was trying to recreate it for a moment, yes. So definitely, I think there's an attempt to, like, outside of the foot, just play her into midfield. Then there's an, mm-hmm. there's an attempt from the left back, I think, to loft it into her, which doesn't quite come off. But then the ball falls to Visali, the left winger, number 14. And she, I think, takes a touch for herself, but then Mewis just collects, right? Mm-hmm. So the question I have, um, it's kind of a question for out there, Taylor, because I know you're not, like, you, you're not a super, a super fan of Houston Dash, and I know I'm not. Mm-hmm. Is Christian Mewis that, essential to this team that they always always look for because that looked like exactly what was happening right here in this moment and then when they did eventually find her she absolutely destroys the chicago red stars so is she that good and is she that central from what i have seen yes that rachel daly is probably their most important player from a goal scoring attacking threat standpoint yeah she has the best action also that christine Mewis from everything i have seen in this competition and that is pretty much my entire basis of understanding for Christy Mewis is that her passing vision and just overall awareness of, of positioning on the field is excellent. And she can thread a ball, a 30 yard pass through two and three defenders. Uh, and therefore I'm not surprised to see her then making that run that exploits the opportunities that are presented through two or three defenders. I think, yes, she is so fundamental to Houston's build up play and their sort of attacking threats when they do occur that I'm not surprised that yeah she gets a number of different opportunities to get on the ball in this one so Houston like give her the ball she'll make something happen right and she really really does so she eventually accelerates down the left wing and I think really smartly times the ball into Rachel Daly I don't know if Daly was expecting it but I know Chicago Red Stars were not expecting it 
Um, mm-hmm. So much so that Juliet is late getting there, right? And I don't yes. know. Uh, I think, I mean, Daly has time to just about play that sort of weird bendy pass back into space mm-hmm. um, for Mewis. It's a really good pass, I think. It's perfectly yeah. placed for Mewis to run onto. And I want to say Ertz just essentially hacks her down after the pass is gone. She does. Is yeah, she goes barging in. And, and I think that is where you're right that we shouldn't throw a ton of blame on Sharples other than the blame that she deserves for conceding the penalty. But I did think that this sequence was a very good representation of what was happening with Chicago at different moments in this game was that you'd have Julie Ertz sort of stepping out and trying to make a play, but that doesn't really leave a lot of cover and it instead leaves gaps. Yeah. And there was nobody really automatically filling those. And I think there were times when then Sharples had to try to make a play or Julie Ertz would try to have to make an individual play. And it seemed like there was much more individual defending from Chicago, which can work, but in this situation could have easily been a yellow card and a free kick for Houston if the goal doesn't happen because Julie Ertz, yeah, basically takes out Rachel Daly off the ball behind the play, and it's not a good challenge at all. It's pretty reckless. It's pretty out of control. I think could have been a yellow and probably just gets dismissed a little bit because of what happens after that. And I know I know, Julie Ertz is a competitor and a warrior, mm-hmm. right? But yep. if you're going to do that to Rachel Daly, you've got to do it before she manages to play the ball. Exactly. <laughs> so she's yep. got the pass away. And then, to me, weirdly, the most impressive thing in this whole um, sequence is Christian Mewis suddenly turns into a sprinter. Like her mm. gait is very much that, I don't know how to quite describe it, but you know when you see like real professional sprinters, they've got the sort of very straight arms, very straight legs, like nothing, very upright body. No, no extra, extraneous movement. Exactly, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. Nothing is wasted, right? And she, yep. I don't know if she always runs like that, but she absolutely like burns down that down that left wing. And you just know that trouble's coming for Chicago when she takes off like that. I think uh, a tiny voice flashed in her head, you can be the dominant Mewis. Yeah. And that was her opportunity, and she took it. At least in America, in starting face, soon. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, then Sharples pulls Mewis back after she accelerates into the area with the ball. And I will leave it to you, Taylor, to talk about Sophie Schmidt's penalty. I mean, it's just... Like in contrast with what we talked about with Bruno Fernandez, what if what feels like several hours ago? Uh, I a no nonsense penalty is my preferred approach, and that Sophie Schmidt first of all seems like her name should be Sophie No Nonsense Schmidt from the interview I saw with her afterwards, as well as the way she takes a penalty. <laughs> but it's just pick a spot, hit it hard. She's learned from the penalty shootouts this this tournament. It seems pick a spot, hit it hard, put power behind it, bury that ball, uh, have it. I think hit the back corner, which is always lovely as well. But I like the no nonsense approach to this penalty for sure <laughs> and then I would argue the rest of the game is just Houston again dashing hopes with their excellent mm-hmm. defensive structure yep. um, strong performances from Norton and Oyster not really a foot wrong that I can tell not really from anyone in their defense and quite easily dealing with whatever Chicago throw at them until Shea Groom breaks away in the 91st minute yeah I mean that that helps when you when you're sort of in on goal and you can run the goalkeeper and score. But I I, I want to just like double down on what you've said, which is just that in terms of scoring a goal early, obviously that is a thing you always want to do. But for Houston, that feels like their entire game plan as soon as they score that one is now completely validated because at that point they can then just sit in and make Chicago beat them and. Like, basically, then Chicago have to prove that they have the personnel to do that. And in the end, what ends up happening is you commit numbers forward. You tried some things out of desperation. Alyssa Nair is taking free kicks. You get numbers in there, and it leaves you exposed at the back. And that's exactly how this goes down. Yeah, so I I have to admit, I rewatched this on a DVR this morning that Mm -hmm. cut out in the 80th minute. So I haven't seen a, I haven't rewatched this goal apart from seeing it live. I don't Mm -hmm. have a lot of detail beyond just there's a lot of open space and, and it gets exploited. 
Yeah, I mean, I always it always reminds me of like when the hockey team pulls the goalie to have an an extra skater on, <laughs> and it's just like it might work out. You've got the extra advantage, but it also does mean that you've got an open goal. And I think anytime you start really going for it, like in my mind, this game finishes one nil, even though it's two nil. Yeah, not yeah. taking away from Shea Groom scoring, it's just that that is a little bit like like does a disservice to the game itself because that goal is so much when the other team is committed everything it has forward. It's going to leave opportunities at the end. So, do you have anything else to uh, anything else to add on this game? Just that uh, I'm I am happy for Houston winning, not really because I have any vested interest in them or any antipathy towards Chicago, mostly because Christy Mewis being so upset was substituted out. I yeah. sort of wanted her to be able to have contributed to a winning effort, and she did. I also enjoyed. Uh, uh, it's not Jeremy Clarkson. I always want to call James. him Jeremy Clarkson. It's not. Thank you. I made that mistake previously with Kim on the show. Uh, James Clarkson, I think, said after the game that Budweiser appears to have temporarily cured her her illness. <laughs> I, I'm going to guess she uh, she also, similar to Dean Smith and uh, Jack Grealish, went, went to the pub afterwards. <laughs> I, yeah, I think hopefully were, socially distanced and all that good stuff too. Uh, from what, from the videos I saw, I think they uh, went to the pub in the dressing room. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> they temporarily opened an establishment. <laughs> so I guess the final elsewhere engine would approve. <laughs> I guess the final thing to say is congratulations mm-hmm. to the Houston Dash. And now we it, knew it, the it whole makes time. Andy, it makes yeah, we knew the whole time. Yeah, I put big money on that. Yep. Um, yep. <laughs> it may, to me it makes Andy Brissell all the more interesting when we come back, right? Because you'll have a North Carolina Courage who are sort of raring for revenge, and you'll have Houston Dash who were previously thought of as this sort of kind of non threatening team who suddenly have mm-hmm. this air of um yep scrappy underdog we're gonna beat we're gonna beat you anyway like really tough yep. team right so this like they've taken on a personality basically which i think is always good for a league it certainly is and then the addition of two more teams that also good for the personality of a league to have more variety and more options for players yeah i mean you've already talked about the the la team right mm-hmm. With, without me so yeah no yep. no and need louisville. for me to wait don't forget louisville no, no, I'm not forgetting Louisville. I'm not forgetting Louisville. Uh, how dare you? How dare you, sir? <laughs> well, Louisville was the, um, just the branding was announced, right, in the past couple of weeks, whereas the LA team was a whole new thing. So, I mean, the LA team is a, a thing, Angel City is a thing that has never existed before, of like every high-profile celebrity ever is, is on board. Yeah. It's a decent profile for a team. It, not bad. It not bad. sure is. Angel City. I'd forgotten the name. It's a really good name. Mm-hmm. I like it. Um, so not necessarily the permanent name, but not not necessarily the permanent name is, I think, the way I've, I've seen it explained that right? in much more concise ways. <laughs> so congratulations to the Houston Dash. Yeah. Um, congratulations for the NWSL for pulling it off. Because yep. um, it really, um, apart from the thing with Orlando not being able to play, it seems like it's gone really smoothly coronavirus-wise. Um, commiserations to the playground. Nobody, nobody celebrated their goal on the playground, did they? It didn't happen. I mean, I think, I think the lack of goals facilitated that. Oh, yeah. dear. Um, and also, uh, just looking back, con- congratulations to the Premier League and Project Restart because they pulled it off as well with no yeah. no major bad incidents as far as I can tell. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. Pretty impressive across the board. Yeah. Um, okay, um, MLS is still in session. If you want to hear about everything that's going on in Orlando, the MLS is back tournament, you've got to listen to MLS Assist. You can find that podcast wherever you find good podcasts um, and some bad ones as well. Uh, <laughs> Taylor, anything to add before we shut this down? This show's getting long. No, I think I've added plenty. All right. Then I'll say, Taylor Rockwell, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Right back at you, buddy. Listeners, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you again very soon. <laughs>